Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, in our last couple of episodes, we recorded uh, last and most recently, for example, with Tom Brevoort. We've been off the schedule a little bit, but we're getting back into the X-Men books uh, with X-Men number 57 today. Basically, all you need to know, X-Men 56, Neil Adams finally comes in as the penciler. It is gorgeous. It completely changes the book. And uh, we uh, also get to see the defeat of the living monolith, or Ahmed Abdul. Uh, Havoc's powers, he's not called Havoc yet, Alex's powers have activated and destroyed a whole giant building and he's freaking out a little bit. That's kind of all you need. Today we're going to be uh, in X-Men 57, which is called The Sentinels Live from June 1969, written by Roy Thomas, with art by Neil Adams and Tom Palmer, letters by Sam Rosen and Stan Lee as editor. Uh, we are thrilled at first, however, to welcome our panel of guests today. I'm uh, so happy to have my friend Rob Salerno joining us again, and I have been a long-term fan of uh, Mr. Ramsey Fawaz. Uh, let's have you both introduce yourselves, let us know your gender pronouns, where we may know you from, uh, and just kind of give us a little bit of your history in that way. We'll go in the order of Rob and then Ramsey. Uh, I am Rob Salerno, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and uh, I am a lifelong X-Men fan. Uh, probably best known in fan circles for writing the blog Iceman is a Homosexual, which is on my uh, website, therobsalerno.com. Um, and uh, that's just uh, chronicling Iceman's uh, appearances in chronological order uh, to uncover the closet that he had been living in for 50 years before he came out. Um, and uh, beyond that, I'm a journalist and playwright. And then over to Ramsey. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be on this podcast and to join you guys to chat today. Uh, I'm Ramsey Fawaz. Uh, I'm a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I teach in the fields of queer and feminist studies and U.S. popular culture. And most people in the comic book space probably know me because I wrote a book called The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics, which I think it's fair to say was like the first really interdisciplinary queer cultural study of uh, superhero comic books since the 1960s. Um, and I've just always been really interested in the relationship of uh, popular culture to radical social movements. Uh, and uh, that's like that book really started that whole project for me. And then I recently finished a book called Queer Forms that was actually published yesterday. Um, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you and the world and kind of showing how the evolution of my thinking from the time that I was have been really writing about comics for a number of years and moving to other kinds of popular culture. So I read New Mutants early this year and reached out to Ramsey uh, almost immediately, like, oh, I would love to talk to you. Uh, hearing queer, queer voices represented in this format and your brilliant essays in the book are, are wonderful. Uh, it was a few months later, I was actually on vacation in Puerto Rico with my husband and kids. And the kids had kind of gotten sick. It later turned out to be COVID, but we didn't know at the time. Oh no. <laughs> we, we were like in Puerto Rico, beaches everywhere. And they were like so ill, we just went to the movies. And I'm in line at the movies for popcorn and my phone rings and he's, hello, this is Ramsey for us. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. With my it like was, energetic voice and yeah. <laughs> it was wonderful, but it's so surprising. Uh, and uh, we, we connected very quickly and uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast uh, now. Ramsey, let's start by, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, as a comic book fan. I would love to hear if you are willing to share a little bit of your own journey uh, as a person in this country at the same time. I know that those intersect a lot as you do your writing. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, I've written about my early experience uh, with comics in a number of venues, but I like retelling the story because I kind of open different dimensions of it. You know, I'm I'm Lebanese American uh, uh, immigrant to the United States, uh, even though I was born in the States. I came here when I was six permanently from Lebanon. Um, and, you know, in my early teen years, realized that I was gay uh, and was also growing up in a gay family. My mom is a lesbian. My brother's gay. And, um, you know, experienced the classic kind of American um, teenage middle school life, which was to be really like bullied. You know, I had this like very high voice, which I still have, which is like, like my superpower is like this very projective, intense voice. I'm like, I'm very expressive. And um, I was just basically being yelled at all the time when I would go to school for not in, you know, inhabiting like normative masculinity. And I remember discovering one summer in, during my middle school years, uh, the X-Men's like 35th anniversary issue uh, at a store and being just completely dazzled. I've talked, I've written a lot about like this amazing holographic cover. I think it was done by Chris Bacalo. It was the first time I saw his art. I'd never seen the X-Men presented that way. It was like Mero had joined the team, a character who I think has been given so much short shrift, by the way. Um, and I was really, I was really overtaken by the feeling of identification with the X-Men as a kind of queer family. Like that's like what was my immediate reading of them in my mind. I was like, I come from a queer family and um, they're like a chosen kinship. Like they chose to be family, like, wow. And so I started reading comic books and um, felt like a deep, deep kinship, like so many other people with like mutants and outcasts and freaks. And uh, I've often said that as I got older and I entered the world of academia, I was amazed how the story that goes about superhero comic books in academic settings is usually that they are conservative, that they are white nationalist and obsessed with virile masculinity. And I was like, that's nothing like what the comics were that I read, which are filled with total weirdos and outcasts. And I, you know, and, and created all these points of identification for a queer person like myself having nothing to do with sameness. Like I never looked at the, those characters and thought we're like each other because we're both gay. It was that I was like, oh, we both kind of like are oblique to the norms of the society. Like we live at a slant from what the society wants from us. And I, I, I see that, like I recognize that. Um, and so I wanted to tell a completely different story. And that's kind of the genesis of the New Mutants. I was like, I'm gonna go back and show how starting in the late sixties, like the superhero was reinvented for people like me, for like the queerdos in the society, like it was for us. And I wanted to tell that story. I think so often we we come from very different places, all three of us, uh, but we have similar mm -hmm. stories and backgrounds. I made a quick recap of my story, which some of my listeners will know, but I grew up in a very conservative religious household in rural Missouri and uh, found the X-Men during a time of crisis. And it became uh, a huge escape for me and I don't even wow, know if I yeah. could have, I don't even know if I could have articulated how much it meant to me until later. But when yeah. I was when I was 17, we had to write a senior thesis on a topic we were passionate about. And I wrote about the X-Men, like a 40 page paper. I love that. So like uh, we find ways to uh, to uh, find ourselves and our histories in these uh, characters. Rob, do you want to share a, a little bit of your story real quickly? Well, um, yeah, no, I, I just I kind of wanted to 
bounce off of that because actually when I did my undergraduate degree in cultural studies, my senior thesis was about queer subtext in X-Men comics. And I also wrote a 40-page paper about this um, that's somewhere on my computer, but in a WordPerfect file, so it's inaccessible. Um, But... (laughs) Yes, I'm old. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I remember like I there's a whole chapter on the Grant Morrison run and um, there is, I think there's a section on Iceman, um, but it was really just like looking at how the depiction of homosexuality had changed over, you know, the, at that point, almost about 40 year history of the X-Men. And um yeah, I, I was just really fascinated by that when I was in college. As for my like background and whatever, I, I, I'm, you know, I was uh, born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Um, I immigrated to the U.S. six years ago. Uh, I'm currently in suburban Toronto right now uh, mm-hmm. for this recording um, and uh, flying back later today. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I have a, a queer story. I guess I kind of have an immigrant story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, like in a very technical sense. <laughs> we, um, uh, I mean, I was just going to say gathering groups of queer analytical nerds is my favorite thing. I'm, I'm thrilled to have the three of us together here. Uh, Ramsey, what were, or Ramsey, what were you just going to say? No, I was just going to, I was just going to point out, I mean, um, uh, all three of you, what you're describing to me is what Anthony Michael D'Agostino, my colleague and I always just call like cross identification. Like there's a way in which comic books precisely because they are so, superhero comics are so fundamentally about fantasy, like the fantasy of having an altered body that can do things in the world that has like different kinds of agency, whether it's telekinetic or the ability to change the weather or whatever. Like it's about like a fantasy of the body's capacity to become something else and to do something else. It demands a kind of fantastical cross identification where people who like, I think people who have had to cross identify by being immigrants, by saying like, now I'm going to identify with another culture. That's not mine. Now I'm going to identify with like, as a gay, as a young gay boy, who is an immigrant, I identified most fundamentally with women, partly because women were the only people in the society who did not tell me that I was garbage, right? Like as like a young person who didn't fit into masculinity, women were like, we love you. Like we love your expressiveness. We love the way you are. Like everything about you is beautiful. And so I looked at women and I was like, I identify with these people because they also experience being shunned in some ways by men, um, but also have created their own community. And I think, it like these stories kind of all make sense to me because you look at superhero comic books, especially the X-Men and the X-Men is literally as D'Agostino argues in a lot of his work, it's entire project is cultivating the ability to cross identify. Um, And I think that's really beautiful. Tell us a little bit about the new mutants, Ramsey. How did this book come to be? Now you're, you're an educator. You are a a, a professor. You, you write, you're wonderful at writing. Yes. Uh, tell us Thank how this you. book came to be specifically. Yeah, I mean, The New Mutants remains really d- near and dear to my heart because it had sat kind of in my imagination for over a decade. Um, it started kind of at UC Berkeley. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Berkeley and I, I studied American studies and English. I had a mentor named Kathleen Moran, who is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Is like a second mother to me. She was a cultural studies scholar Um, who thought all about politics and popular culture. And she mentored me over a number of years and had me be like a teaching assistant in one of her classes. 
And she asked me to write a, uh, like a lecture, to give a lecture. Imagine at like, you know, 20 years old, I was being encouraged to give a lecture to a group of undergraduates about comics and consumerism. And I, I told the story before that like, I, I put together this lecture on like the history of collecting. And she was like, that is so boring. She's like, you're a close reader, like do a close reading of something that you think is fascinating. And so I was like, well, what's a great story about consumerism and consumption? Um, the Dark Phoenix Saga. I was like, this is a story about a woman who goes into outer space and consumes an entire star, an energy store, uh, <laughs> source, and it's never enough, right? So I did this whole thing where I like read up on like the energy crisis of the late 1970s and like about Jimmy Carter and began to realize that actually the story is so much deeply about feminism and about the backlash against feminism, the perception that women are basically all consuming monsters who cannot get enough uh, of what they want politically and how the story is this like really like fundamental breaking point for the X-Men where it's feminist vision of the seventies is running up against like the rise of conservatism and Reaganism. So I gave this talk and she was like, this is what you should be doing for a living. She's like, this is like, you are meant for this kind of cultural analysis. So I went on to get a PhD in American studies and I was really encouraged by my faculty members. They were like, look, if you just write an old school book, that's like a cultural history of superhero comic books, like you'll, you'll never get a job. Nobody, like nobody cares about that. So like, you need to actually tell a story that's never been told. And part of what I did is I went back to the old Fantastic Four comics, which mm -hmm. I had never read. And uh, they changed my life. So I thought this is the queerest comic book I've ever read in ever. And it's a complete reinvention of the 1950s nuclear family as a literal nuclear family. Like they're like a, they're like an, as an unstable molecule that is becoming queerer as time goes on because they're literally like unraveling their bodies, like their genders, their sexualities. And I suddenly had a moment where I was like, oh, this is a political moment. This is a moment when comic books respond to the backlash of the 1950s by like reinventing the superhero as a mutant, a freak, an outcast, and making that character available as a kind of new political icon for the left. And when I presented that to my faculty members, they were like, that's the book that's going to get you a job. They were like, you as a fan of comic books are making an argument that is so ambitious and so big that for anyone who studies post-World War II American politics, culture, history, you're going to make the claim that you don't know anything about that if you don't know about superhero comic books, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to tell this story that's like really big about how superhero comic books basically helped people imagine outside of the impasses of left politics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I kind of track how that happens um, that's a very long story of like no, where no, the New Mutants comes from, but I can say more. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. When I read the New Mutants, I, uh, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's not what I was expecting based on the title. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought it would be like analysis about the X-Men, but it turned into like a very deep, if you guys are going to order this book and read it, this is a book where you need to take your time. You're reading very analytical essays about the Silver Surfer, about Superman's extended family. Mm -hmm about the X-Men and about the New Mutants. Uh, for example, uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga, which, which has been uh, interpreted so many times by so many yeah. people. Uh, Ramsey gives us a, a really beautiful exploration of this in a feminist lens. One of the points that really stood out to me, and I had to reread the books after, yeah. uh, is the friendship of Jean and Storm. 
uh, as mm. a as 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 a, a lens through which to view this feminist movement through. Uh, and uh, it, it, anyway, yeah. I, I can bring up a thousand points, but it's it's really really smart. How did you decide the content you were going to put in the book? Because there's there's a lot yeah. of essays, but I almost think there could be forty more. You know. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I one of the criticisms I got of the book is that it's very heavily leans towards Marvel Comics, which is true. Um, and many people are like, well, it doesn't survey enough comic books, which is impossible, by the way, right? I mean, I read something like, I'm no joke. I read something like 7,000 pages of comics for every chapter, and there's seven chapters. Um, so it was it was overwhelming as a task, as a literature and cultural studies scholar. Like, I don't think I, I understood when I went into it, how the volume of what I would read. But basically what I did is the way the book is organized is that uh, I do like little diptychs. I take each decade, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. And I basically show you it two ways. So I take the 50s and 60s and I'm like, let's do the Justice League. Let's do the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. Two different versions of the superhero team. One which is like an internationalist United Nations of superheroes, right? Living out the liberal fantasy, the liberal dream of like global cosmopolitan internationalism. That's the Justice League. Then we have the Fantastic Four, which is critiquing the politics of liberalism. It's like, actually, liberalism doesn't work because it assumes that everybody has to be the same at some level. We all have to have the same values. And the Fantastic Four go out into an uncharted universe and they meet like a million aliens and mutants and monsters who don't fit into the, like the liberal imagination of what it means to be human. And so I do that with every decade. I'm like, let me show you how more than one thing was going on in superhero comic books in each decade. There were all of these different fantasies of what solidarity and collective life could look like between people who wanted to change the world for the better, right? But so one of the ways that I decided was that I just read so widely. Like I would look at what was most popular. I was like, okay, the Justice League is so is super popular. But let me also read like all of these other superhero comic books that are about um like the United Nations and internationalism. I would read like if when I read the Fantastic Four, I read like all of the events, like the first 50 issues of the Avengers. I read all of these other Marvel comics. Like I read around certain texts. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I kind of, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just agreeing with you, yeah. Yeah, and, and then I would decide which one seemed the richest or the most complex, right? This is just a, like you have to make judgment calls as a scholar. So I would say like there's a lot of queer family formations in 60s and early 70s superhero comic books, but the Fantastic Four is deep. Like it is doing something really high level and complex. And so I was like, I'm going to focus on certain comic book series, but I'm going to show you how they're part of an ecology with other comic books at the time. And a lot of it was also about the stuff I love. I mean, I end with the New Mutants, which I borrow my um, title from. And I still to this day believe that the New Mutants is the smartest, most amazing and astounding superhero comic book ever written. Uh, I think it's Chris Claremont at the height of his powers, and it's way beyond the idea of the X-Men as just multiculturalism. Yeah. He's doing a very deep thought thinking about indigeneity, about dispossession, the idea that identity is a form of dispossession. You know, all of the characters are immigrants and refugees. I mean, it's deep. And so I kind of made my decisions based on what comic books I thought were doing really rich, complex cultural and political work. So on my podcast, I record a lot of episodes on a lot of topics, but I've been able to do some kind of pared down character focused episodes recently. In fact, Rob and I did one yeah. about, about Iceman's parents, 
which turned into analyzing oh, cool. uh, all of their appearances over history. And it became very much about, uh, you know, a queer kid coming out and what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, I, just did, I just did an episode with Hussein Rashid on uh, Sidorak, and it became a, a conversation about what it's like, you know, referring to Juggernaut, battling your God to reclaim your power. Uh, like you wow. can you can look into these characters and that's one of the beauties of the X-Men, I think, is you can look into these characters and find so many conversations to be had. You take the five new mutants, the original team, and there's a four hour episode easily on each one as we right? ask where they come from and who they are. Who are your favorite characters? Uh, a question for both of you, actually. Uh, uh, Ramsey first. Yeah. Who are your favorite characters? Um, You know, I, I always go back to Storm. I mean, I think Aurora Monroe is like one of the most amazing, complex, um, lovable, identifiable characters in the history of comics. I just think it's like fascinating that this like white straight guy obsessed with like S&M, Chris Claremont, um, <laughs> You know, uh, that's Anthony Michael D'Agostino's point, by the way, who I've mentioned a bunch of times. Like his whole argument is that the X-Men is really all about S&M and like, the, like identifying across domination and 100%. submission. 100%. Like that's, and, he's writing a whole book about this, by the way. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And um, I mean, like Storm debuts fully naked and then Xavier puts her in a black leather bikini that she yes. appears in for the next like hundred issues. Absolutely. Uh, that she then mm-hmm. trades for a black leather SM outfit, like explicitly. It's very, yeah. this is, it's not subtle. No, uh, not at all. Not at all. It's amazing. And so I- I'm deeply moved that a white straight man with those kinds of interests in certain kinds of sexual subcultures could so could render so complexly like these multi, this multiracial cast, like imperfect, right? Like not always perfect. Um, like always making political and cultural missteps, but like in a really inventive, imaginative way. I mean, in some ways, what the answer I actually really want to give is like uh, my favorite characters are really the friendships between certain powerful women in the history of the X-Men. So like you mentioned, the friendship between Jean and Storm is extremely important to me. This, again, cross-identification between a Black woman and a white woman feminist, basically in a moment when those bonds seemed like they were impossible by the late 1970s, I think is really powerful. And I'm obsessed with Ileana and Danny, like Ileana Rasputin and Danny Moonstar, like that extremely unlikely friendship that is like, why would these two people be friends, right? And the deep kind of communion that both have, one based on indigenous and Native American like uh, dispossession and the other based on her own trauma, like being dispossessed of her own childhood. Right. And like that, I find just so those are really the characters that are compelling to me because I love comics because they're about communing freely among outcasts. And I know that's what's compelling to me. Fascinating. Uh, Rob, before you interject, I'm getting ready to record an episode on the portrayal of Storm's parents uh, and how it changes over time. Wow. Uh, And you've got her mother, who's an African princess and her father, who's a photojournalist Mm -hmm. meeting in college. There's scenes added later in their in their history that you go back and add to Storm's history. For example, there's a scene, and this is in Black Panther. I'd have to get my references up. We'll we'll cover it in the episode where Storm's mother is experiencing racism in America, and she basically says, "I would rather live in a war zone in Cairo where I know I'm in danger than live in this society where I'm always in danger and I can never see it." Kind of kind of a message. And you add that to Storm's history. You add that to who she is and where she comes from. It's fascinating. She's an incredible character. I'm doing mostly 60s books, so I'm really excited to be getting into the Claremont stuff over time as we add more yeah. and more complexity to the stories. Uh, uh, Rob, did you want to share some of your favorite characters? 
Yeah, I just I want to bounce something off of Storm because this is probably my most controversial X Men opinion. Mm. Um, is I, I what one of the things I love about Storm is that she's actually um, in the Claremont run a terrible leader of the X Men. Uh, all of her questions, <laughs> yeah. all of her decisions are constantly wrong and proven wrong and disastrous, and she is constantly questioning herself. But I think that's actually really fascinating. Like it's such a contrast to Cyclops, who never questions himself, even when he is demonstrably wrong. Um, and, and I think that's such an interesting way to portray leadership. Um, not, I mean, you know, yes, she does have her wins and it would suck if every time the sure. X-Men lost, but, um, you know, uh, basically from the moment she takes over, uh, after, uh, uh, Cyclops leaves for the first time. And then when he comes back and she has, and they have like sort of the duking it out, yeah. um, she gets a, a couple of like, you know, rhetorical wins and then the mutant massacre happens uh which you know her whole leadership of morlocks is obviously uh, called into question um the the decision to fake their own deaths uh which is disastrous for all of their allies for um their their whatever they were trying to do in in the outback uh during that time which never seemed to go anywhere um I think I think it's actually fascinating that he made the the question of leadership so central to that that storyline. Um, and and it's funny to me because you know so many people talk about Storm like they love her because she is this powerful leader. Um, and I think that more comes from like the Lobdell era uh, in the '90s when it seems like there's a second sort of like wave of looking at, at her leadership where she is more confident. She's got, she's grown into the role, um, and and she is better at it, frankly, um, which I, I, I find really fascinating. Uh, actually, as my favorite characters, um, I'm glad we're doing this issue because uh, since I was uh, a child, my my favorite characters were Havoc and Iceman. Um, Havoc is is a, a weird choice. It's a deep cut, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, when I first started collecting those Marvel cards, um, it was the image, uh, the Jim Lee drawn image of, of Havoc just like burned into my eyes, like this massive destructive power and, and like just how cool the idea is of like pointing at something and it goes away. Um, <laughs> and Iceman is just, you know, I've always loved the wild card character in, in any series, the Joker, the, the one who has like good one-liners and his one-liners are usually terrible in the sixties, but I like that he is, uh, you know, a little bit, um, uh, um, you know, disrespectful or, or not like, you know, he, he's, he's the one who's going to like roll his eyes at stuff, um, which is, you know, it, it, by the time we get to the nineties, it seems like every character is that character. Um, Cause you, you get Wolverine, you get Gambit, you get all these other things, but um, I've always loved uh, Iceman for, for that and for the visual and, and in retrospect, I think for the, the gay subtext stuff as well. When I was growing up, the two characters I leaned into the most, and this is kind of mid-90s, uh, were Cable and Cannonball. And for the same reason, weirdly, I, uh, I felt like a tremendous sense of responsibility and to like contain my queerness. And although neither of these characters are queer, they both have this like heavy burden of responsibility. And then mm. for Cable, whoa, whoa. I've got to keep my power whoa. in check or my or my mutation, the, the techno-organic virus will, will spiral out of control. But I think I could find that same parallel with Havoc had I read in the 80s. I went back and read them later, obviously, but that, that idea of yeah. contained power resonates with me. But wait, since when are Cable and Cannonball not queer? <laughs> Literally every member of the X-Men is queer on some level. That's and Cable true. grew up in the future. In the future, everyone is queer. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, he's also a cyborg. I mean, he's a queer cyborg, yeah. like, uh, like fully. Yeah. He's a time travel baby. We love those mm-hmm. in our Summers family. Uh, when you consider uh, the 60s books, Ramsey, uh, I know you, uh, a lot of, uh, not everybody's love for the X-Men goes back to Claremont. But when you go back and do the the foundational work like we're doing today, when we read the 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 stuff that was laid down before Claremont took over, what are some of your thoughts on their portrayal in the 60s? Oh, I'm going to sound so, like, mean. I I understand why they no, got they're, canceled. No, they're bad. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm actually, I had kind of forgotten because I read some of them so long ago. Like, I barely remember them at all except the first few issues. So, like, they really are, they're trading in some of... They, they strike me as capturing the growing pains of the comic book industry as the new left and like the counterculture emerges and explodes onto the American scene. Like the issue we'll talk about today, we'll, we could talk about it in a few minutes, but like it intrigues me that it's in 1969 at this like incredible transformational point in American politics. We're literally when, getting like, ready to land on the 60s. moon. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, and the radical 60s is going to explode into the cultural, the political radicalism of the 60s is going to explode into the cultural radicalism of the 70s. Um, And I think you can tell the growing pains of the the comic book, it still wants to cling to white masculinity. Mm -hmm. It still wants to cling to, like, uh, all of these kind of old ideas about um, male power, um, that it's it's like you can tell that it's ha- it's being forced to let go. It's being forced to release it. Um, like we'll again, we could talk about this in a few minutes, but I think it's telling in the issue that we're looking at that women basically play no role in the issue. And then all of a sudden at the end, there's an entire thing about Jean Grey written by a woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like literally the comic book admitting the bifurcation that's like, we don't want to let go, but I guess we're going to have to create more space for women. Well, and, and then this like is, leaving this whole story at the end. And this is also an era when they've killed off Professor X. So there's, there in the yeah. late 60s, we have this idea of youth who are trying to find their purpose without their leader, right? Yes. So you see some that's, of that here. Yeah. yeah, it's still very much the white men who are, who are dominating the story. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by that. Uh, tell us about your new book, the one that was just released. I've, I've uh, yeah. you kindly sent me the introduction, which I got to read, and it's yeah. brilliant. And I am a huge feminist at heart, and I can tell you are the same. I know me too. Tell us about the, uh, yeah. the new book you have coming out. Yeah, um, so I've written this book called Queer Forms uh, that resonates deeply with the New Mutants, but goes in new directions. Um, and the book is really about the queer and feminist 1970s. It explores this kind of amazing moment in which two social movements, the women's movement, what we now call second wave feminism and gay liberation kind of explode onto the American cultural scene and are deeply influenced by one another. Um, I wanted to tell a story about how gay people and women were deeply politically aligned in the early seventies against patriarchy and sexism and homophobia. But more than that, I wanted to show that that alignment, the shared political interests of women and queer people could be tracked most visibly in popular culture. You could see in the the way in which artists, writers, and filmmakers of the 1970s began to tell completely new stories about gender and sexual outlaws. But more than that, they wanted to reinvent different art forms so that they could formally represent Um, what it meant to be gender and sexual non-conforming in all of these new ways. So we see this kind of explosive reinvention 
of the cinema, of comics and visual culture, of literature, um, in order to try and like say, how can you use text, visual language, film, to tell different kinds of stories about what it means to live in a gendered and sexual body in mm. the United States. Mm. So like the bigger picture is that I wanted to tell the cultural prehistory of the moment we live in now. I wanted to say like, actually, if we're having a gender and sexual revolution today, it's because we could imagine it in the mind's eye. We could imagine gender and sexuality as something different in the mind's eye because of the art and the popular culture that came out of the 1970s. And I kind of go back and I trace that history. Um, and comics are really just one part of that larger story. Um, so I look at like lesbian science fiction literature. I look at uh, experimental science fiction film. Uh, I look at gay serial fiction. So I read a chapter about Tales of the City, which is like the most popular gay serial fiction ever written. I do a chapter on The Boys in the Band, this like very famous um, gay film that has been largely kind of like disposed of by people and I try to reclaim it. And so, yeah, I, that's kind of the nutshell of what the book is, is doing like in a broad big picture. Uh, to make it very personal for me, once again, I, uh, I grew up in a very, you know, white heteronormative society as the quiet queer, queer kid who carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. And when I first came out, I left that community behind and was desperately seeking another community. And I threw myself into queer studies I started reading yeah. uh, reading books that were written and watching shows and understanding culture from a particular lens. You can enjoy the X-Men as a straight white guy, absolutely. But then when you come out and go back and read these books through a queer lens and you start to find queerness, one big example that I use when I tell my own story is I grew up watching Nick at Night, which is like old reruns mm -hmm. of television. Yeah. Uh, and when I came out, I went back and looked at a lot of the shows I grew up watching and many of the actors were gay and closeted. And I'm like, okay, wow. there were queer people there the whole time. We yeah. could take topics like race and culture and femininity uh, and uh, analyze them in these lenses. And I, I think you have such a keen and brilliant mind for that, Ramsey. I'm, I'm thrilled. I feel like I could talk to you for an hour and a half just about Gene and Storm's friendship. <laughs> like you yeah, put a lot yeah, of thought and love sure. these things. Uh, uh, when, it, when, uh, when is your book out? Is it out now, the new book? The book just was published yesterday. Okay. Okay. And so, so yeah. We're recording this on September 7th for our listeners. And this uh -huh. is on September 29th. So it'll be, a, a, yeah. I, I will likely have read it then before we. Oh, the, thank <laughs> you. That's generous. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm excited to kind of like share it with the world. I think it's a, in some ways, I think it's a much more ambitious, like bigger argument even than I made in the new mutants. And I think um, it really pushes a lot of contemporary social justice warriors who I love and admire to rethink some of their own politics. I try to say to this generation, like, look, the 1970s is an amazing moment of filled with great ideas about gender and sexual freedom that we often look back at, like with kind of condescension. We look, we often look back at that era and we say, oh, those people were really racist. The move, you know, the second wave feminism was all about white feminism. It was transphobic. And I say like, no, that story is actually way too simplistic. Those were highly coalitional movements created largely by American youth who are still figuring themselves out, like just like you today, you know, and um, they were inventing new new forms of gender and sexuality that like remain absolutely meaningful to us today. And we really should look at the popular culture for that of that era as like a toolkit 
of possibilities for us today, rather than as a series of failed representations that don't adequately live up to our own values. I taught a lecture yesterday for a group of therapists. Uh, that's my day job. I'm a therapist about the the changing portrayal of media and technology and its impact on mental health. And one of the points I brought up is not only yeah. are growing and expanding as a species, but it was only 28 years ago when I got my first email address and 20 years ago when I got my first yeah. cell phone. And we look at how things have changed. And one of the things I love about these types of discussions on the podcast is these characters that we love were portrayed in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. As humans are changing, we're reinterpreting these characters over and over again, and it's constantly shifting. Uh, I have about 30 questions I'd love to ask you, but I think I want to transition into our book review because during this review, I have six or seven pretty profound questions I want to ask you as well. Oh, sure. This topic. Uh, So are we okay to go ahead and move forward? with both of you. Yeah. Uh, so it, in the issue today, and I want to do just a, a quick uh, a quick intro, we talked about Neil Adams a little bit last time, and I promised listeners we'd come back to him for just a second today. Neil Adams just passed away this year. Neil Adams is famous for being an advocate for creator rights, which is something uh, mm-hmm. that is always, always on the forefront of creators. Uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby famously did not get along about ownership of the characters. It's something they fought about when they were working together and in the decades until both uh, until Jack Kirby passed away. Uh, and we had this going on with, uh, with even the creators of Superman, when you go straight back, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster had these same types of problems. Uh, one of the things Neil Adams did was helped form the Comics Creators Guild, which is sort of the union that helps represent a lot of creators and their ownership, particularly for artists who create characters that are then owned by companies. And this is something musicians go through, right? Someone writes a song and then it's owned by the production company instead of the musician itself. Uh, and so uh, uh, Neil Adams was uh, famous for that over the years, for being an advocate and a safe space for people to try to help advocate for their rights. Uh, uh, Ramsey or Rob, we're just kind of introducing that as a brief topic quickly. Do you have any thoughts about that? The idea of uh, of artists and their rights in the comic book forum. Rob, do you want to start? Um, I, I mean, sounds good. <laughs> no, it, it uh, obviously like... Um, you know, uh, there are. I, I, I'm not at all a, a, a scholar on on these uh, particular legal issues and 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 such. However, you know, it it certainly does feel like there is a right and a wrong morally uh, when it comes to the ownership issues that that play out in here. Um, you know, uh, you can understand why in a shared universe with um, uh, multiple people writing a character. Uh, that ownership issues would get quickly murky if it wasn't um, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, uh, owned by a company at, at all. But at the same time, you know, when when you go to a Marvel movie and uh, the entire movie is based on a plot written by an identifiable creator uh, and features characters created by an identifiable creator, uh, and then has entire whole pages of dialogue that are lifted directly from uh, a comic book uh, that was written by an identifiable person and even has scenes that are uh, painted after uh, scenes that have been drawn by an identifiable person. It, it really, I, I get my back up when I see that because it it just seems very clearly like this is cut and dry, um, a, a, uh, a question of unfair treatment of a creator. Um, but you know, creators also know what they're getting into when they, when they create for a company like Marvel or DC, uh, which is unfortunate to say, um, but 
you know, there there is like a, a, a fair question when somebody says, you know, I created the Winter Soldier. Well, did you? Because Bucky's been around since the 1930s. Um, so how do you like square? So is, is the Winter Soldier a distinct character from Bucky? And in some ways he is, in some ways he isn't. Um, you know, there was an interesting, an interesting case uh, can come out of like who created Cable. Uh, did Rob Liefeld create Cable or is Cable created by Chris Claremont uh, and uh, Paul Smith, who illustrated uh, X-Men 201, the issue where he's born, uh, which predates that by six or seven years. Um, it, it's it's you have these these questions that won't come up in other kinds of media. Um, but that said, you know, if you did this with television writers, the screen actors or the screenwriters guild uh, would have a, a a very clear answer for you and say like, well, somebody does own that, somebody did create that, somebody did write that dialogue. So yeah. uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, Neil Adams, uh, you know, started this movement for for artists to um, help them get fair treatment. And uh, yeah, I, I, I beyond that, I don't have any real. I don't know, knowledge or, yeah, or no, legal. Okay. Uh, uh, great insights. Uh, Ramsey, did you have anything you wanted to add there? I honestly could not say about it myself. Like, I think that's exactly right. I mean, what I talk about in The New Mutants is I have a moment where I talk about in the 1970s, when a lot of these issues were coming up, comics were like resurging and becoming kind of shifting from being these like artisanally produced um, creative works to being like corporate enterprises, like Marvel and DC were making enough money that they were about to become like the early versions of the conglomerates we know today. There was a question about like, well, how, how do we protect our rights as artists as these companies are making more and more money off of our work? And I think that that clashed with an ethos of free creativity. There was like a sense of like, but also we wanna say that our work is really just for the world. And so in some ways you see that tension in the comic books themselves. I talk about hero for hire, right? Like Cage and the fact that you get these superheroes that start charging money. And there are superheroes in the Marvel universe who are like, well, that's kind of messed up. Like we don't, we don't like that you're charging money. And I say that partly uh, like you're supposed to be a good Samaritan. And of course, Luke Cage is like, yeah, that would be easy if I lived in a not racist society. <laughs> like I could live off of my being a good Samaritan. And what I argue is in some ways, comic book creators were inventing characters like that to process their own ambivalence about wanting to make money off of their creations, but also feeling like maybe they were selling out. Right. I and so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, but but I would say today... You know, to speak to the points that Rob was making, like all of these things just have to be adjudicated case by case. Mm -hmm. Like that's why there is copyright law. It is murky and difficult, but like there has to be somebody who arbitrates, who says, well, this movie that you made is both based on the original character, which means that a cut of that money needs to go to the person who created it. But a lot of the story is based on the version of that character that say Rob Liefeld drew. So he also gets cut of the money. Like all of those things can be adjudicated. And what the companies, from my understanding, try to do is to obfuscate all that by saying, we paid you a lump sum at some point for that character. And now we don't want to ever talk to you again. Like that's what DC did with Superman, right? We paid you a couple hundred dollars or something, like maybe not, not that, you know, but now we're making like billions of dollars over this char character. We can't give you any of it. Actors get residuals. 
for a reason. Every time something that they were in gets uh, reproduced. So I, I, I mean, I really couldn't agree more that if somebody created a character and a company is making billions off of that character, that company should legally be required to pay that person a certain percentage every single time that character circulates. Because and the company would not have made that money had that person not invented it. Well, and employers, employers have figured this out many years ago. There's a famous case, uh, which uh, you guys may know, like Betty Davis had her contract where they would pay her a certain amount of money every week. And she had to be in whatever films they said. And she wasn't allowed to be in any other films unless they said she yes. did. So she didn't get the role she wanted because she could only do what was told. And she famously took them to court. And it was this awful, uh, crazy battle. And she ended up winning. I mean, there's a lot of those types of stories. You, you have music artists that are signed. And your music never gets known unless you're signed. But then you also agree that they own everything in your first three albums. So even once you're famous, you can't go do anything until you have yeah. all of the tours and all of the press and all of the publicity. Uh, so this this extends beyond comic books. But that's why, I mean, this could be its own podcast. But we can have long conversations about uh, unions. It's a really interesting thing. Uh, let me toss out one more factoid. We also promised last time to give a little bit of information about Tom Palmer. Uh, Tom Palmer was born in the early 1940s. He sadly died just a couple of weeks ago on August 18th. Uh, he started working at Marvel in the early 60s and ended up spending about 50 plus years doing comics work off and on for Marvel. His uh, most recently published work was Immortal Hulk number 34 in 2018. Uh, Palmer was most indelibly uh, associated with Neil Adams and Gene Colan. So a lot of their most famous work, the Avengers, uh, or excuse me, the Kree Scroll War, the uh, the stuff that Gene Colan was doing on Daredevil and Tomb of Dracula and Doctor Strange. Uh, he worked with John Buscema in the Avengers and John Byrne on X-Men The Hidden Years. Uh, he tried uh, <laughs> He tried to be a penciler at first, but he's like, I did a great job. And they're like, oh, no, you didn't. Maybe you should be an inker instead. And he built a whole career on that and was very well loved, very well respected. Uh, for for uh, readers of my era, uh, his son, Tom Jr., Tom Palmer Jr., had a, uh, a column in Wizard Magazine that I used to read every week back when Wizard would come out. <laughs> you guys remember Wizard Magazine? Oh, yeah. My God, I, I used to collect Wizard, yeah. But we're going to be uh, we're gonna be doing a lot of Tom's, uh, work on Tom's reading throughout the rest of this X-Men era that we're finishing out. Uh, and by the way, we have 10 issues left uh, in the 1960s X-Men run. Neil Adams has 10 issues wow. ahead before the book is canceled. Um, so with that, let's jump into X-Men number 57. And I have lots of talking points for us as we go. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on the cover at first. Uh, we have uh, three redesigned Sentinels. The Sentinels have not been seen since the initial run with Stanley and Jack Kirby uh, back in X-Men 14 through 16, which is one of their most famous runs from the early 60s books. Uh, the Sentinels have been redesigned. They are bigger. They are more like the Sentinels we know from the cartoon. Uh, not quite as giant, but these are like 10 feet tall. They seem a lot bigger. Uh, the X-Men are fighting them. Angel's got his arms ready to be ripped off, it looks like. And then they've superimposed this creepy image of uh, Larry Trask in his green uh, suit from inside the comic. I think they liked how creepy he looked, so they just kind of pasted it on the front of the cover. Uh, what are your thoughts on this cover? I love it. It, it, it you know, it's, it's, I think it's got a really great sense of design on it. The action, the movement, um, the crazy, crazy expression on Larry Trask's face and the huge foreshortening on his hands. Um, the lighting is really dramatic. Um, I, I think this is great. This is uh, one of the, the greats of the era. I mean, this is so classic X-Men to me, right? Which is like the team under siege. This is like you have, a, like, like the best covers are always the covers um, 
in this era where the entire team somehow manages to be like smushed onto the cover. So there's this like explosive sense of like a collectivity under attack. I'm fascinated by also this Christ-like imagery at the center where Angel, there's this like long history of presenting Angel as a kind of uh, crucified white male figure. Uh, And we see the Sentinel kind of like um, potentially going to kill him uh, and he's like at the center of 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 the team. Like I, I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but I think that imagery is is fascinating. I think the Sentinels represent so many things. And again, this is what makes that original Stanley Jack Kirby story so indelible. We have a human who is afraid of mutants, who has now built these machines to contain mutants. But almost the first thing that happens is they go sentient and become uh, a threat to the humans that they were seeking to protect in the first place, right? So you have this idea of man's fear uh, running out of control and being the very thing that destroys them. Uh, The Sentinels have become like the arch nemesis of the X-Men across the decades. They're reinterpreted over and over and over again, giant death machines meant to contain the thing that we are afraid of. Uh, And there's so much narrative uh, license to explore with that. Uh, Ramsey, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on the Sentinels themselves as we're delving in. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense. Like, they're like such a perfect allegory for xenophobia and normativity, right? Like, they're robotic. They multiply. They always look the same, right? There's a monotony to kind of like the endless reproduction of them, And their whole thing is to mimic, right? Like as they evolve, like let's say that Nimrod, right? Later will become like the most sophisticated version. I don't know if there's another version after that. I think there is. I think there's many versions after that, but right? Like they mimic, they function by mimicry. They become better at being able to like reduplicate or like to neutralize the powers of the X-Men. And I think this is exactly how norms work, right? Like gender and sexual norms, racial norms is like, through the imposition of a monotonous, structured, like set of expectations, like social norms that are imposed upon people that always feel that they're policing you everywhere you go. Like, right, like the Sentinels are always shown in this issue and others. They're always like peering through uh, like people's windows. They're breaking through the top of someone's apartment building. Like they're all like, that's how like, that's how social expectation and norms work, always surrounding you and policing you. But what's interesting is that the people who deploy them are obsessed with the thing that they hate, right? Like Trask and his son cannot get enough of mutants. They're kind of obsessed with them. Like they remind me of like Tucker Carlson and his dad and their (laughs) obsession with trans people. Like they hate trans people, but they can't stop talking about trans people. And they're like, want to police them. And so there's a way in which the Sentinels also represent like a desire for the other, like this obsession to keep pursuing and policing the very thing that you claim to hate. Um, And then, like you said, it always backfires. So like they they actually make so much sense to me. They're really quite perfect for the series. Well, and we're going to get into this in a future episode. We'll do some focused work on the Trask family. But just as a quick recap from the early Stan Lee story, Bolivar Trask has built these Sentinels. Uh, He is, seems to be, Uh, trying to protect humans, right? So we have this idea of the political agenda that represents the majority. Like this is the thing we have to protect our children from. And literally he dies at the end of this run when a sentinel collapses on him. In this issue, we're gonna meet his son, Larry, who we won't learn this for a while, but Larry is, this is something they add later, that Larry is a mutant. And uh, Bolivar also has another mutant child who is Tanya that becomes Madam Sanctity. We'll get into this again later. So we have this idea of not only is this man trying to protect humans, but he's trying to protect humans from what his actual children are. 
or in this case, Larry, who uh, or Lawrence Trask, who we'll meet here, is fighting against the very thing that he is. And there's so much queer analysis that can take place with all of that, but we'll save that part for a future conversation. It's just uh, crucial as we step into this issue. Uh, Rob, do you wanna take the first five pages for us? Kind of give us a summary of what happens. Tell us some of your thoughts. Sure thing. Um, so we open on uh, Lorna in her apartment in, I believe this is still San Francisco. Uh, it's a gorgeous, huge, very modern furnished apartment. Um, uh, I don't know how she affords this. Uh, it's never really established what <laughs> Lorna is doing at this point in her life either. Um, she has parents apparently, but we never actually meet them. I don't think we've ever met them in the entire 60 year history of this character. Um, uh, but, oh no, that's not true. We, we do eventually establish that her mom hooked up with Magneto. So we do see her in a flashback later but her, in David's run. But her mom is dead. So she's being raised by her adopted parents, the Danes. That's, yes, yes. So maybe they're rich. <laughs> Honestly, like you look at her with the green hair and the thing, and like she looks like a drag queen. I mean, she looks like she would totally be part of the mod, like Warhol '60s troupe. Yeah, I totally, totally buy that. Um, so she's hanging out in her apartment, and she's you know sort of down on the dumps because her uh, magnetic powers are are kind of fritzing out. She's uh, not as good with them as she was hoping that she would be after being proclaimed the queen of mutants ten issues ago. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when all of a sudden she hears big leaden footsteps outside, doesn't know what they are because uh, uh, she, I guess, wasn't paying attention to the news three years ago. Um, so <laughs> all of a sudden she hears uh, a, a robotic scream, prepare yourself, mutant. The Sentinels live on the next page. The Sentinels have uh, burst into her apartment somehow. Um, it looks like they, I don't know, just break down the walls or something. It, it, it's not really shown, but uh, they're, they're inside the apartment. Uh, she screams for help, and uh, that is the end of that scene, and we transition uh, back to Egypt, where we left our hero's last issue. Um, and uh, uh, Angel and Cyclops uh, recap the plot for us. Um, they've just escaped the living pharaoh's temple, which has been destroyed by Alex Summers uh, while he uh, was trying to escape and his powers uh, finally manifested and he he blew up the whole building and, and is the, uh, it appears, sole survivor. Because um, uh, the pharaoh had a whole bunch of um, uh, very silver agey um, guys dressed up in ancient Egyptian costume uh, henchmen that uh, have disappeared at this point. So let's just say maybe they fled. Uh, who knows? Um, but they're probably buried under tons of rubble in the uh, deserts of Egypt here. Um, and uh, we flip over to the next page and Alex is uh, freaking out because this is uh, the biggest manifestation of his powers yet. Uh, and he just knows that at any minute he can explode again and possibly kill people. Um, and uh, yeah, he's uh, he's afraid of what he might do in, in one rash instant to a living, breathing human if he could do this to a temple. It's a very long monologue here about that, very uh, flowery purple prose about this. Uh, and uh, we flip over um, and uh, Iceman has gone off to find the local police um, who are 
riding in on camels because this is 1969. And oh, I, I want to know really quickly, Rob, as the as the authorities kind of pull in, uh, we still have the living pharaoh here who's just like in a like in a green shirt and bald. And he's like, uh, he 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 just notes, I am the war, I'm this country's leading archaeologist. That man, arrest him. He's he's the one that's behind all of this. Like we just needed to give that character his moment of hubris here. Uh, as he just lost his power, he was literally a giant filled with power, and now he's just this small yeah. sibling man who's blaming the the guys there. I want to know how uh, Professor Abdul got back into these civvies because when last we saw him, he was a giant stone man wearing a tunic, and uh, then he shrunk back down and his clothes reappeared. Uh, you know, complete with uh, khakis and jodhpurs and, and uh, you know knee high boots and everything. Um, and of course, you know, uh, in in this uh, iteration, he looks like the reasonable person in this group of spandex-clad nutbars. Um, but I feel like if he was still wearing his living pharaoh costume, might have raised a few eyebrows uh, when uh, when the local police uh, rode in on their camels. Um, this is I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming. Uh, Neil Adams and Roy Thomas just watched Lawrence of Arabia and thought that was a contemporary yeah. piece or something. Um, just but, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so Professor Abdul just says, uh, arrest, arrest that guy, arrest Alex Summers. He's obviously the one who blew up this temple that was um, uh, a, a clear national treasure. Um, and Cyclops tries to intervene. Uh, says, wait, no, this is the this is the bad guy. We we just arrested him. He's crazy. Look at him. Uh, and that does not convince anybody. Um, so the uh, uh, police officer guy says, no, we're going to arrest Alex. And Alex freaks out. And of course, his powers manifest again at the worst possible time. He uh, um, attacks the police officers who uh, seem to multiply between panels. Um, but it uh, looks like he just blows up a gun. Um, doesn't actually hurt anyone yet, but um, Angel tries to make a distraction by flying around them in a little circle while uh, the X-Men get away. Uh, and, uh, well, that is the end of page five. The uh, the allegory for queerness in Alex Summers, although we, I believe Havoc is a straight character, but this idea of uh, this contained power, I was born with it, I didn't choose it, and when I let it out, it destroys everything around us. That's the idea of, I think, a lot of people in the closet get when they are worried about kind of letting their light shine. Uh, for the mutant allegory, of course, Alex has not had an opportunity to train in the use of his powers. This is new. I understand him freaking out. But this is also the introduction of his character. There's so many things about him that stand out in these first two appearances. His com constant comparison with his older brother, who he sees as more successful. Uh, his inability to contain or control who he is. He, he's a character who constantly feels like he has no uh, control over his own destiny or purpose. Uh, Rob, let me ask you, I know you're a huge ha ha Havoc fan. Uh, what are your, some of your thoughts on his portrayal here? Well, I mean, his portrayal here, it's very one note because obviously like we're only five pages into a 15 page story and there's not really a lot of room for it here. Um, it, it's interesting, these early appearances, they're still trying to figure out what this character is. Um, and if you like going back a couple of issues, uh, his actual debut, you know, he is uh, just graduating from college. He's top of his class. He's a star athlete. Um, and and the, the comparison with Cyclops is actually the opposite of what we will uh, come to define his character for the next 
60 years of appearances, uh, Cyclops looks at him as like, oh, this is the kid who has everything. He's the natural leader. He's smart. He's successful. He's athletic. Um, the uh, the official handbook uh, actually explains that Alex is a child prodigy because in order for the ages to work for these characters, he's got to be, he max 18 years old in, in this scene and he has just graduated from college already. Um, and a star athlete at 18 at the college level, which is also kind of crazy. Um, but he is a mutant, so that's maybe fair. Uh, but um, he never thinks he's good enough. There's something that that, that right. I think that there's there's definitely an aspect of that too. Like, and that's that's something that I kind of like identified with as well. Uh, even before I read these issues, because I feel like it, this aspect of him as being like an overachiever or an attempted overachiever really carries through in in his uh, uh, run as a as a character. Um, this idea that you know you have to work so hard. You have to drive yourself to do all of these things. And, you know, um, he, later on, he'll, he'll leave the X-Men and he'll, uh, you know, continue in school. And I feel like that's a very, um, you know, he sees like, that's, that's my path to success. That, that is the thing that I was good at that I am pushing myself at. And, you know, he goes on to do his, um, uh, doctorate in, uh, in geology. I don't know that he ever actually finishes it. Uh, uh, Polaris only, uh, apparently just finished it. Um, but, uh, it's not clear if that's a joke or not from the, the current Gary Duggan run, just so that he could have a character named Dr. Polaris. But, um, it was, uh, uh, it's, it's definitely like that is the long running plot line for him is he's in New Mexico. He's doing, uh, the work, to his toward his uh, degree in the sciences, and um, and and yeah, uh, I, I think he's such a like a dedicated you know bookie guy that like I am going to do all of the right things to compensate for this internal thing that is wrong with me. This this thing that I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to go live in the deserts so on away from people, and I'm not putting them at risk with my the thing that is wrong inside me. We're not going to um, get there for another six weeks or so, but we are going to do the trial of Alex Summers. Rob's coming back. I love this character and I just read his whole chronology front to back, but yeah, he's, he's, he's set up well here for everything that follows. He's one of the most consistent characters in the X-Men franchise. In my opinion, when you read him front to back, it works. There's not a lot of like, wait, even though there's a few things like mutant decks that are hard to shove, <laughs> shove it. Well, yeah, you yeah. can say that about literally everything that Howard Mackey has ever written. And, <laughs> and I like to imagine that the whole, everything he's written is just in a, you know, a, a pocket universe somewhere that doesn't really actually impact anything. So anyway. let me cover, let me cover six through 10 really quickly. Uh, we, yep. uh, we have the X-Men surrounded by these Egyptian authorities Alex is shirtless in a skirt and barefoot, and he's freaked out, and he just runs off in the desert. And Cyclops is worried, of course, but he gets a little racist. He calls the cops camel jockeys, which is super not okay. Uh, you are an American visiting, but he zaps them with his optic glass. They go spiraling, and the X-Men get into their mysterious pink airship. We don't know where it came from to go follow, and uh, they are trying to find Alex, who's hiding in a cave. Uh, they leave the living Pharaoh behind with the authorities, so we're not going to see him for a minute, but he does come back. Uh, Alex is off in a cave, and this, uh, when I was reading his chronology, there's about four speeches this character gives over the decades that really define him for me, and this is one of them. Left alone with his, with his inner thoughts, he he's literally speaking out loud to no one. Uh, he goes, so this is what it means to be a mutant, to be afraid to touch anything, afraid even to breathe, and yet... 
Was ever another mutant so terribly, desperately alone? Even Scott, who's always lived in fear of what his optic blasts might do, never had to cope with power like mine. Power that makes my every gesture a threat, my every moment a menace. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about this character who is just assuming, I mean, he's in trauma here and I get it. He's freaking out, but he's also like, I have more problems than anyone. No one has ever been more struggling than me right now. Uh, but then the Sentinels burst in. They are clearly hunting for mutants. Uh, they rush in and they grab him and the X-Men are still looking for him outside. Uh, Cyclops goes, wait, I forgot. We have a Cerebro unit back in Lorna's apartment. We don't have Cerebro with us. We should check in on Lorna. So apparently they have a camera in Lorna's apartment. Apparently they're monitoring her, which is super creepy. I don't know <laughs> yeah. where this comes from, but they look in the camera. They discover that the apartment is in shambles and she uh, is missing and Iceman freaks out. Uh, and he has a right to worry about her, but also he's only known her for like two weeks. So settle down, Bobby. And uh, uh, Iceman wants to know right now what is uh, going on and what has happened to her. Uh, so there's a quick summary of the second set of five pages. Uh, Ramsey, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on uh, Alex's portrayal here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the character Havoc? Yeah, I mean, I can't help but feel that the entire issue really, I said this a little bit earlier, it's like it's magnetizing all of the anxieties of white straight men in the late 60s. Right, like first of all, the issue is like a visual uh, display of white male hysteria. Like that's what it's all about. It's like Neil Adams enters, he is providing these gorgeous cinematic, like hyper elaborate drawings of a lot of like beautiful white male masculine muscular bodies under duress and stress. Sure. You see these panoramic, I mean, one thing we haven't pointed out is that most of the pages have only four panels and they're massive, they're cinematic. He's obviously trying to borrow the visuals of cinema. So most of the panels go across the entire page like as long rectangles. So they look like wide angles. And we get like all of these wide angle images of Alex Summer shirtless, half naked, in hysterical, like freaking out about his own body and its capabilities. And like, I can't help but feel when he's saying that speech, it's like a moment of recognition like, at the end of the decade, like as the women's movement is, is starting to emerge, as gay liberations emerge, that like a certain kind of 1950s all-American white masculinity has this extraordinary amount of power that's also really violent and really awful. And like, there's a way in which like, this is kind of unconsciously referencing that, but also making it into a kind of, like you said, like a boo-hoo, like, oh, poor me, like we're actually the most oppressed. Like, I find that really odd, like the ambivalence, like the, the issue seems to be recognizing this reality, but also wanting to elevate the figure of like kind of the blonde white guy sure. um, by making him central. Um, so I'm, I'm like just kind of, in, I'm intrigued by the fact that all of the men in the issue are very hysterical and very emotive and very feminized, right? They're like mostly half naked. They're always on display while the women kind of like disappear into the background. Like both of the women have like two sets of lines and then they disappear. Uh, Jean Grey is actually interrupted in the middle of her sentence <laughs> um, and then told to stop talking. It's so bizarre. And, but then the other component that I find so interesting is the racism, like the need to also play all of this mutancy against the figure of like the Middle East, 
which is a, another kind of whiteness that is seen as kind of like interrupting their flow. Like, I, I still don't know what to do, what to make of that. But like, yeah, I mean, the statement about camel jockeys isn't sort of racist. Like it is fully racist. And I'm intrigued by like also the long history of the obsession the X-Men has with the Egyptian, the Egyptian mythology. Like we see this with apocalypse, et cetera. But like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of that is coherent. But no, it's I mean, wonderful. We also, we, yeah. did point out, we did point out in a previous episode, thank God at least that they made this, the bad guy Egyptian instead of being a white guy calling himself the living Pharaoh, because that would have been- Fair. <laughs> that would have been worse, but there is still yeah. direct racism. Yeah. I do think there's a queer allegory here too, speaking from when I was in the closet, which is many years ago, yeah. I was so afraid that I might be gay. I was taught that gay people were yeah. something to be afraid of. And when I'm confronting my own homosexuality, there's this self-hatred that kicks in. And I, in, in a large mm-hmm. way, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Alex is dealing with that as, as a mutant. Like, that's the last thing I wanted to be. And I hate myself for it. And it takes a lot of time to learn how to love yourself when you've been taught to hate yourself. Uh, Ridz, yeah, and by take... the way, if you... oh, please go yeah. ahead. No, I was just going to make the other point, with, with just to, to like uh, redouble what I said earlier. I think that that thing that you're describing, the like the fear of in, of like the internalized homophobia that he can potentially be interpreted as having, is kind of duplicated in some of the contradictions of the form of this issue, mm-hmm. which is that you have the spectacular visuals of Neil Adams. But which also uh, push women out to the edges of the narrative. Like there's like like women are spectacularly drawn by Neil Adams. Like we have this brief moment of Lorda being drawn by him at the beginning. And she's so she looks like a disco diva. But then she never reappears, even though she has like one of the most interesting visual presences under Neil Adams uh, drawing. And there's a way in which the comic book is saying like, the only way we can entertain the queer possibility at the core of Alex Summers as being is that women have to disappear from the narrative. Because if women were central, it would actually like confirm that gayness is in somehow, is in some way feminizing. And I think what's interesting is what we're gonna get in just a couple of years is Claremont flipping that script and being like, we're gonna actually make women the center of the entire emotional universe of this comic book right and the men are going to have to circulate around that which i find which i find really interesting um so the next few pages um deeply concerned about lorna the team decides to send two uh representatives uh beast and Iceman, to go check in on her somehow they travel in this as you said this pink jet we don't know where it came from um somehow they they also the pink jet that needs no, no interpreting, <laughs> uh, right? Um, somehow in only a handful of hours, they travel from Egypt to all the way to New York City. Um, and we have a complete change in the narrative. We go, we, we change its settings to Lorna's apartment. We're now back in an urban space. Iceman and Beast enter her, her destroyed apartment and are immediately assailed by uh, two police officers, one white, one African-American. Um, and suddenly we have like right an, a, a redoubling of what happened earlier where the X-Men were encountering Egyptian authorities. Now they're uh, encountering American authorities. And in fact, Bobby says, police American style. So I think this is really interesting that also there's this like long history of the critique of policing in the X-Men of like mutants being policed by different kinds of outside forces. Um, they take on the police, Bobby freezes their guns. And then one of the police officers 
somewhat unbelievably picks up an entire office chair and throws it at both of them, hitting the beast who flies out of a window. Uh, and I think it's interesting that it's the African-American police officer who says, oh, no, you shouldn't throw that chair. You might you might push one of them out of the window. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Although um, I've wanted to throw a chair at Beast yeah. a time or two, I'll just admit. <laughs> I mean, at least to see how he deals with it, right? Like what he does with it um, uh, acrobatically. And then we get this really interesting, very Neil's, a Neil Adams-esque um, kind of panoramic splash page in which Beast flies out of the window. He's hit by the chair. He flies out of the window and he careens kind of like he somersaults out of the window. And we get almost like the entire page all the way down looks like um, like a film reel with all of these different little units as we see him falling. And then he notices that Iceman has created a uh, a pole, an ice pole for him to slide down so he doesn't um, perish at the bottom of the building. Iceman then creates a huge slide on the next page, whisks them out away from the police and all the way to uh, the nearby apartment of um, uh, Cyclops. So apparently all of the X-Men have apartments in New York City in this period um, that they can hide away from in. While they're there, uh, Bobby is frantic, stressed out, doesn't know what to do about Lorna, about being assailed by police everywhere. And um, Beast basically says, we should look at the news and see if it clarifies anything. And in fact, the news shows us Bolivar Trust's son speaking to journalists about the mutant menace and basically saying, we need the Sentinels are our only hope. They're going to protect mankind. And suddenly the two of them realize that the Sentinels have been reborn, that the Sentinel program is back. Um, and what we get is kind of another story of male hysteria. We get Bolivar Trust's son freaking out about the death of his father. He's crying. There's kind of a long series of panels showing how in his rage and trauma, he wants to, you know, destroy all mutants. Um, I wanted to note, also, I wanted to note really yeah. quickly, a couple pages before we get to see Larry Trask in this green, crazy, that's the image that's from the cover, right? He's, yes, he's like yeah. the ranting madman and we don't know it's him yet, but a couple pages later, yeah. Suddenly he's he's looking very clean cut and kind and he's allied himself with a federal judge named Chalmers. Yeah. And they are speaking before the Federal Council on Mutant Activities uh, about mm -hmm. what a threat mutants are. So this idea of this crazy, insane person who's hiding in plain sight and also has influence directly to the government. I think there's yeah, so I many mean, things very, that we can read into there. It's very much hearkening back to McCarthyism in a lot of ways. You know, the megalomaniacal kind of figure within the government that's like hunting um, you know, in, in the 1950s, of course, for McCarthy, it was gay people, homosexuals, as it, they would have said it then. And Larry, um, also, Larry also blames but, for killing his father, even though Bolivar died because yes. a fentanyl fell on him. So he died at his own accord. Yes, and we get that him. story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the issue um, ends with uh, Trask kind of screaming that the Sentinels live, or, or screaming that the Sentinels live and are back. And while he's saying that, we see a Sentinel looking in, again, this kind of policing image of the Sentinels looking in to Scott Summer's apartment. Uh, and we're assuming that next they're gonna attack, they're gonna directly attack uh, Beast and Iceman. The, uh, the flashback to Bolivar with Larry as well, uh, uh, building the first Sentinel, as he says, you know, if I don't make it, son, you've got to carry on my legacy. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea of male hysteria being passed from father to son. I've got to pick up the yeah. and run with it. Uh, Anti-mutant hysteria in the comics is often shown in one of 
three ways kind of consistently in the X-Men. You either get civilians who are saying hateful things, so there's hate speech, yeah. or you get humans committing hate crimes, which can be throwing rocks or, you know, literally crucifying students on the front lawn of the Xavier, yeah. which is something we've seen. And then we also see them building technology to try to contain mutants or build policy on how to handle mutants. That's where we get things like the Mutant Registration Act or the death machines or the camps that are that are introduced pretty consistently. All of these real world parallels for how government handles, uh, again, we, we mm -hmm. talked about xenophobia or we talked about McCarthyism. Uh, we see these types of things, the containment space that's required in order to handle these things that we don't understand. And we'll have a lot of conversations about this as we move forward with this story. Uh, but Robert, Robert Ramsey, any thoughts on that before we uh, transition to our final story quickly? I, I just want to add one little uh, key point here. When they're hanging out in Scott's apartment, uh, Bobby's just like hanging out in his underwear. Um, this is more apparent in the next issue when we get an opening splash page of uh, them just sitting on the couch together and, uh, you know, just chilling in their underwear, That's as you do. Uh, Bobby there's and Lisa are a couple. There's, there's a delicious long scene. There's a delicious scene in Luciano Vecchio's uh, Iceman uh, series, Infinity, which which I just interviewed Luciano, where uh, Christian Frost is downstairs playing the piano and Iceman comes down the stairs and Christian goes, oh, you're still in your underwear? And Bobby goes, no, this is my costume. And Christian goes, oh, I can never tell which is which. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's cute. I mean, there is, I mean, Adams is setting up something here visually that I think we're going to see a lot in the Chris Claremont run with uh, John Barron's uh, art artistry, which is that a lot of the comic book uh, is dedicated just to the visual visualizing men's bodies, like as as like life and muscular and athletic. I mean that sequence in which um, Beast falls out of the building seems completely unnecessary to me to the story. Like you don't need an entire splash page to just show him tumbling out of a building. But it actually really like visually displays the athleticism of his body. Like it, it, it is, it's a visual spectacle. It kind of interrupts the narrative. And I think that Adams is setting up this thing that there's also like beyond the political narrative, there's also the visual pleasure of, of like witnessing mutant bodies in all of their different forms. And I think here men's bodies are particularly like at the center of the narrative. But again, I think that that will change in the Claremont years when women's bodies will become much more uh, visibly at the center of the story. Fascinating. Uh, Rob, did I interrupt your thought before? I apologize. Oh, no, just uh, basically, yeah, this is Iceman just hanging out in his underwear uh, and and uh, more evidence for my um, uh, long running thesis that uh, Iceman and Beast are a couple. Uh, they have been since the Silver yeah. Age. Um, they're constantly like, you know, we'll, we'll, they're constantly going out together. Um, they, they date beards together. Um, you know, by the time they're in X factor and, and living in a building that is literally twice the size of the world trade center, they share a bedroom together. Uh, they oh, sleep together. So it, it's yeah. There, there's so much to this, um, that just never goes noticed. And I'm, you know, I, I, I've been waiting for beast to, uh, come out you know, all these years, especially, you know, the last decade that Iceman's been out. Beast is, Beast well, is bisexual. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the issue also ends with the Sentinel being like a peeping Tom looking in on them while they're sitting side by side on the couch, which I think is hilarious. Uh, the Sentinels are back. The son of Bolivar Trask is around. He has allied himself with a federal judge who has ins with the national government. Uh, the Sentinels have already been sent out. 
They are already gathering mutants. We can assume that's happening to other characters, which it is. We'll learn in a few issues. Uh, and the X-Men have a threat right around the horizon that they don't even know is there as they are looking for Alex in the middle of the desert after they contain this impossible threat of the living monolith. I love this book. I love this version of this, the 60s book. We've got 10 more issues. Uh, it's great right now. And if this book had able, been able to continue, I think they would have continued to do incredible things. But mm -hmm. it was already really struggling with sales. This is Neil Adams' second issue. They basically gave him a year on the title before they finally uh, canceled it. But there's a lot of amazing stuff ahead with Neil as we move forward. I'm going to cover the last five pages really quickly. I had the esteemed pleasure on my podcast a few months back to interview Linda Fight, who does not do a lot of public interviews, but she's the one that wrote this story. Uh, Linda worked at Marvel. Uh, she is the first woman who ever wrote a title at Marvel that we know of. There was a small number of women, many of them related to the men who worked there. Uh, we got to talk to Linda a lot about what the office was like and about this specific story. So if you haven't had a chance, go back and read it. Uh, Linda became a reporter after she worked at Marvel for a bit, and she was kind of doing reporting when uh, Roy brought her back in. All of the male X-Men characters have been given three backup stories in a row. Angel had three stories. Beast had three stories. And at the end, it's almost like they remembered, oh, we better do a Jean story. This is the last five-page backup. There's no story given for Jean. She just gets to show off her powers. It is written by a woman. It literally says in a in a steam, <laughs> in a little box by Stan Lee, uh, that we we wanted to do a featurette on the mesmerizing Marvel Girl, written by a member of the supposedly weaker sex. So let's welcome Linda Fight. And the the issue is titled "The Female of the Species." Linda was well aware of the <laughs> of the sexism that was in place back then, but she told a pretty great story. And I don't think Werner Roth's pencils have ever looked better. Sam Granger on inks. Uh, Jean looks incredible. Uh, we get this kind of, she, she's playing with Jean's different types of powers. In the first page, she's, uh, she's pretending like she can read your thoughts. She's got these bubbles coming out saying, here, I can read your thoughts and, and I'm going to turn the page with my own telekinetic powers. But if you, but if I can't do it, maybe you could help me. Uh, she's doing a lot of domestic chores, which is literally Linda kind of poking fun at the idea of what men thought women should be doing. She's picking and carving apples. She's literally cleaning the house. Uh, but then on the very next page, we get to show her fighting, using her powers to more great effect. She can escape. She can run through fire. If you fucking tie her up, she will get her way out. Don't you dare try to fight her back. Uh, then we get to see her impressively kind of catapulting herself into the air, landing safely. She is stronger than the villain that is fighting her as she overcomes him with her intense powers of, uh, of uh, telekinesis and telepathy. Uh, and then finally, she's able to stop a thief from robbing a woman and get him. So this is a this is a tongue-in-cheek story. We get to see Jean looking gorgeous, using her powers. It's a commentary on feminism. It's a commentary on what men expected women to be. So even the Jean, even though Jean is relegated to the last story and the final five pages, and she doesn't get a backstory, we get to see Linda doing some pretty great stuff with her here. Uh, I love this five-page backup. It's been reprinted frequently, which Linda told me is that's great because I get a residual once in a while. Whenever they <laughs> whenever they need five more pages, they can use this, and it's wonderful. Although she's not super proud of it, uh, given that you know fifty years have passed since. Uh, any thoughts on this final five-page backup, the female of the species? Well, I, I mean, so the the, the reason the reason Mar Marvel Girl doesn't get uh, an origin backup story is because her origin of joining the X-Men is just X-Men number one. Like she shows up and she joins. Um, the other guys were already there. So I guess they felt like, oh, well, we don't need, like there, there wasn't a, an inciting incident. She just kind of 
came to the school. Uh, it's it's kind of a weak argument. Claremont does give her a backup story or a, an actual backstory uh, eventually. Um, fun fact about this: uh, Linda uh, uh, is the the first woman to write on the flagship uh, X Men title. Uh, do you know who the next one is? Uh, is it Anasenti? No, Anasenti never has a writing credit on Uncanny X-Men. The next woman to, to write on the flagship uh, X-Men title is actually uh, Kelly Thompson in the X-Men Disassembled era. It, all the way down in 2018 or 2019 is when, and she's like part of the three people who are writing the book at the time. So it's a. Uh, I mean, a we had Louise Robinson and Anna Sentine people on the way, so but when you're unreal. talking the flagship book, that makes sense. That's yeah. crazy. It's unreal. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie Liu wrote Astonishing X-Men. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Louise Simonson wrote New Mutants and X-Factor, but never X-Men itself. Yeah. Sure, crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on the five-page backup. I mean, I'm obsessed with this five pages. I think this five pages is admitting to everyone that we really just want to see women in power way more. Like the fact that she says, please don't be alarmed if you feel strangely compelled to pay unusual attention to the contents of the following pages, right? Like, they're speaking to this, they're admitting something that like, you know, that looking at women is interesting and looking at women that are both like visually pleasurable to look at, but also actively being agents of visual storytelling. They're playing on both. Like to me, this reminds me a lot of an invisible woman in this era that they're always doing something in the Fantastic Four where they're playing on these like male dominated looking positions they're saying like, look, I know that I'm that we know that Invisible Girl is is sexy and desirable to look at and feminine, but she's also incredibly powerful. You know, this there's a whole tradition of this in American popular culture, like Bewitched, I Dream of Genie. Like this is the, the moment when the comic books are acknowledging that like we can play on the visual pleasure of women's bodies without reducing those bodies to mere sexual objects. And the comic book is like we're going to do it both ways. All, like all the time in every single panel. So she's, like you said, she's drawn in a way that is very compelling and sexy while also reminding you that like you want to keep looking because she's a compelling character and you want to see what she's capable of doing. It's not simply about like ogling her body. It's about like seeing all the variety of different skills that sure. she has. And I think like the comic book is smuggling the idea of women's agency within the visual pleasure of women's bodies. And I think that's going to become like the central visual conceit of the Claremont era. If you want to read more of Linda Fight's work, she did not do a lot of comics, but she famously wrote the first four issues of The Cat. Uh, so the character mm. Greer Nelson in the Hellcat costume. And it's very much a commentary on the same thing. Men expect uh, Greer to be one particular thing, but she's so much more than what they expect her to be. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Linda does a great job with that. Linda, if you're listening, I'm a huge fucking fan. I think you're amazing. Uh, and uh, I'll message you when we put this out. Uh, we could talk on so many topics from today at such more length, but I am so fascinated uh, and honored to have sat down with the two of you 
and uh, gotten your ideas. My brain is going to be buzzing for hours. Ramsey, I am a huge fan of your New Mutants book, and I can't wait for your next book Thank to come you. out. Uh, what an honor to meet you and spend time with you. Today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This was so awesome. Um, as we're wrapping up, let's go in the order of uh, Rob and then Ramsey. And Rob, I know you're catching a plane. If you need to jet out after that, let me, it's <laughs> just completely fine. Uh, where can people find you both online? And uh, if they'd like to look for your stuff, where can they find that? Uh, is there any other announcements you'd like to make, given that this is coming out at the end of September as well. So uh, Rob and then Ramsey. Uh, thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast. And it's uh, always fun to talk about uh, Havoc and Iceman. Um, you're you're one of my me. favorite guests. And uh, Rob and I got to meet at FlameCon a few weeks ago. It was such a such a great time to meet you. Oh, all. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you can find me uh, online at therobsalerno.com. That's where you can read Iceman is a Homosexual. Uh, I am uh, uh, well behind on posts. I, I uh, am working on uh, the Operation Zero Tolerance era, which is uh, a, a great showcase for Bobby, and we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but uh, you can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Rob Salerno. And uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I am on the internet. Rob and I also have a two-hour episode about Bobby Drake's parents uh, on the Patreon. I'm going to actually be releasing that on the main podcast within the next few weeks here. So give that a listen. It's wonderful. Uh, I, it changed my understanding of Bobby as a character. So Rob, always a pleasure to see you. And then Ramsey. Um, you can find me just by Googling me. Like I have a great faculty page with a lot of information about all my publications, uh, what I teach, what I research. I also have my own website, RamseyFawaz.com, uh, uh, which is being completely retooled. So if you'll give me a minute uh, with the new book coming out, it'll be kind of reinvented. Um, and then, you know, all of my published writing can be found on, like, again, if you Google me, there, I have a, what's called an academia.edu page, which is like Facebook for nerds. And I have all my published writing uh, accessible there for people to download. Uh, and finally, all of my books are available wherever books, books are sold. I really always encourage people to buy directly from the publisher, NYU Press, uh, an amazing, you know, very well-known um, academic press publishes my books, but they're also available on bookshop.org. Of course, you can get them on places like amazon.com, but I like to encourage people to go to those uh, independent booksellers or buy directly from the press. Uh, again, what a huge honor. And then lastly, you can find uh, Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter or Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. I'm posting regularly and easy to chat with. Uh, the episode's coming out after this. In the next episode, uh, and uh, I'm going to take just a second to set this up. We do a character trial once a month where we review a whole history and have a mock criminal trial. So we're doing oh, our first... We're doing our first joint trial. It's going to be the characters Mastermind and Mesmero, uh, who both have kind of mind control powers that they will often use for sexual assault purposes. So we're gonna do the trial and it's gonna be a lot of fun, but the immediate podcast following that is going to be a panel of uh, female writers and educators where we're going to be analyzing the construct of mind control and its use towards sexual assault in comic book history. So we get a super nerdy mock criminal trial followed up by a super intellectual discussion on feminist really topics. Uh, after that, we're going to have Mike Friedrich on back for the next issue of uh, X-Men in X-Men 58. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ramsey. Or, or, oh, my God, I did it again. Thank you, no, Ramsey. No thank worries. you, Rob. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you back thank here you. on Grand Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grand Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grand Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. 
Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.